I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And you're listening to Cemetery Row. Hello. Hello. We're very tired. <laughs> we kind of are. <laughs> um, welcome to Cemetery Row. We have a lot of um, discussion-y type things to cover before yeah. we get to our main topic. So strap in. We hope you enjoy our chit-chat. Right. Um, you can always skip it if you don't want to hear us talk shit. So. Uh, I, don't, I wish you wouldn't, though, because... I'll start off with my own pimping my own stuff out. I have tours coming up this spring at Elmwood Cemetery. Yay! If you are going to be in Memphis, Tennessee in April, May, or June, you can hang out with me at Elmwood for a tour. I'm giving True Crimes of Bygone Times tour on April 26th and May 17th. Both of those are at 5.30 in the evening, so it's technically an after-hours tour of Elmwood. So I take you through the cemetery after hours. It's just us. And I tell you about terrifying murders um, and, and fun things like that. Then on June 15th, which I don't know what day of the week is. I don't know. Saturday, Sunday, it's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm giving my The Plot Thickens, The Writers and Raconteurs of Elmwood Cemetery Tours. So, you know you want to go on these tours. You know, I'm I'm speaking to you, not subliminally. Um, I'm I'm hypnotizing you with my my gentle voice. You want to join me on these tours. You want to go to Memphis. You want to go to Elmwood and see these tours. And you want to tip me well. I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> really? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I will say this. I'm I'm going on a vacation this spring for my birthday, thanks to my family. And I, I'd like to have some spending money. So <laughs> surely that's what I'm saving all my tour tips for right now is is for the trip. But either way, um, and speaking of tours, if you don't take my tour at Elmwood Cemetery, that's okay. Go take one of my tours for backbeat tours. We are back on our regular uh, ghost tour schedule seven days a week starting in March. Um, I will be the Monday night guide and a couple of weekends maybe. And then sometime in March, hopefully, I hope I'm not speaking out of term, we will, because um, my boss listens to this. Hi, Megan. Um, <laughs> uh, we will hopefully kick off a brand new tour that I helped create for them um, that I'm so excited about. It, it's it been so much fun creating this and I've been uh, popping in on the script over the last couple of weeks, kind of tweaking it and adding fun little jokes and practicing. And I'm very excited. So that will be coming up in the spring. I'll tell you more about that when we get there. But until then, take the uh, Memphis, I uh, forget exactly what they call it, Memphis Walking Ghost Tour. Um, we have a lot of fun. I've had a lot of really good tour groups lately. Um, we've been mostly giving tours on the weekends and we have had a blast um, with people getting some really good uh, content, um, people like actually getting orbs or creepy things. I don't know. It's, I've got a lot of people have got some good photos of ghosts. They've been, the ghosts have been turning at, turning up and turning out for me, which I appreciate. Love it. Um, so yeah, so hang out with me. Oh, if you want tickets for all that, just Google Elmwood Cemetery Memphis. It's elmwoodcemetery.org or go to backbeattours.com. Um, speaking of pimping out other things, I wanted to pimp out two friends who have things going on. Um, our friend Stacy Williams Ing, who, uh, she 
was a guest on our show last year. She created that awesome oracle deck based on cemetery symbolism called Roses, Dust, and Ashes. She has a new deck on Kickstarter. Um, this is the Rhythm and Soul Tarot. So it's a tarot deck, and it's all based on music, American music, music of the Mississippi Delta, basically. And each suit is a genre of music. So wands is jazz, swords is axes, like guitars, rock and roll. Uh, cups is blues pinnacles is roots like country americana um and then she has this cool add-on deck of playing cards called the devil's music i'm super excited for that too um she surpassed her goal of ten thousand dollars in 40 minutes which blows my mind um but because you people keep you know pledging to the kickstarter that means she can do more things like with extra money she's been able to publish a rhythm and soul workbook add metallic edges to the cards just really cool stuff so anyway if this is something that is up your alley you like music you like tarot go google um kickstarter uh, rhythm and soul tarot um i love her art for these they're so pretty and i wanted to pimp out my friend robin um, she has a podcast. I think it's coming out on March 1st, unless they change it, which I, I hope not. I hope they stick to March 1st. Either way, it's called Subculture Wars. Basically, she's going to cover the infighting that goes on in fandoms and communities online. It's going to be hilarious, y'all, because she has found some of the craziest. It's like, you know, she's super into Law and Order SVU and the arguments people have over <laughs> should you ship this character with that character and then um as i was telling tumblr in the 2010 oh my god you know these debates you are yes well you do of these well versed <laughs> my favorite thing is some of the smut fan fiction or arguments i did not know these were a thing and unfortunately now my brain is polluted with them because robin tells me about them um like in there's there's people write transformers smut fanfic which if you do that you do you my friend i am not trying to yuck your yum but what side are you on do you believe they have actual human genitalia or do you think they just have sockets and cables i I don't know but these are the topics that robin will cover on her podcast i i've listened to the first episode it's gonna be hilarious y'all i'm so excited for this so check out Subculture Wars if this seems like something that is into into you, a thing you're into. Mm-hmm. Unless they are into you because it, they have cables and they have found your socket. I don't know. <laughs> um, I swear to God, I'm going to stop talking in a minute. Um, I we wanted to give a shout lot. out. <laughs> I want to give a shout out too to the movie Lisa Frankenstein. Lori and I went on a little uh, podcast friend date recently, yes. and we went to see Lisa Frankenstein, and it is so adorable. And if you love cemeteries, I think you'll like the movie because, like, the first five minutes, she's like talking about how she's in love with this guy's tombstone, and then she's like, "I just think dead people should be remembered." And I'm like, "Did I write this movie?" Did I write it? It is so Sheena. And then it's beautifully 80s. They must have used so much Aquanet in this movie. Um, I thought it was precious and adorable. And um, directed by Robin Williams' daughter, Zelda, which is rad. Written Um, by Diablo Cody. Yeah. So go support these awesome ladies in filmmaking. 
Yes. Absolutely. Um, and then and I'm more depressing keep news. Okay. Yeah, or and more depressing news. Too. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to honor next Benedict. Yeah. I'm sure you have heard baby. the news out of Oklahoma. Um, next was a 16-year-old non-binary student who was bullied and beaten in their school bathroom by some older students. And they died the next day from their injuries. According to the Human Rights Campaign, this is at least, at least the second violent murder of a trans or gender expansive person in 2024. This, no, that's unacceptable. Um, yeah. Not cool. No. And I, I know there's a lot of rumors going around about their murder, but it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get into the, to me, what matters is this human, this person who should be here, who should be accepted as they are, is was bullied for living authentic an authentic life. And that's not cool to me. Right. Um, I know it's not cool for any of us. Um, and you can't bully. You just can't. Bullying is bad. I, I, I feel like that shouldn't be a radical statement to make in 2024, alas. Right. Um, but you certainly, yeah, no, no one should be murdered for just being who they are. Well, and having grown up in, like, a small town in Arkansas, which is, you know, Oklahoma to the left or to the right, um, you know, there was, if you were different in any way, there was just this innate need for the community around you to just obliterate you from existence. And that, yep. you know, you see that so much. And I'm glad that my nibblings are growing up. And even though it's in Mississippi, it's still relatively larger yeah. area it's the coast so they're a little bit more chill and laid back than the rest of yeah. the state is you know but to to still see that and to you know everyone say you know and i hear it all the time oh we won't have any more pick your bigotry once those the older ones die out well no because they're teaching their kids to be like this and yes you exactly. know i always hate the oh well if you name your kid this or you do this that or the other with your kid they're going to get bullied how about you just teach your kid not to be a fucking asshole how about yep. that yeah yeah 100 that would be a start we know, right and we know and having been you know in these situations where oh well you know tell the school the school doesn't care the school wants to see no. these kids bully just as much as everyone else does and the head of education in oklahoma is an absolute fucking psychopath so you know come at me dude sue me and i was gonna and i was gonna say to you to me go into the schools it's almost going to like hr for the company they don't right. care about They're you they there. care about themselves right. they care about the right. company's best interest and i feel like a lot of schools and i say this with my mother having worked for a school district um you know the school district's trying to look out for itself Right, so, they're there um, to keep the status quo. And know, they should. They should right. respond. They should try to help their students, but I I don't know that they will or, or can. Right, or, if they perceive that I don't student know. as wrong in some way, they'll throw that kid under the bus. Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, so. But, it's but all this. Sad. They have yeah. the right, you know, and I hate hearing, especially with like teens who come out as gender nonconforming or trans of like, Oh, you know, what if it's not permanent? What if it... let them grow up to figure that out? I know. Nobody I know. Nobody is going in and like forcing your little girl to be a little boy if that's not what she is. That's not Exactly. It. 
It's let them become adults and figure it out for themselves. Because when they're not being murdered, they're committing suicide at astronomical rates. Right. And it's, again, let them grow up to figure out for themselves if this is what they want. But they have to be adult. They have to make it to adulthood to do that. Exactly. You know? You know, and I think that's one thing I've kind of enjoyed slash been terrified of about growing up and growing older. I feel like we're all still discovering ourselves, even if we do reach adulthood. We're learning more and being like, oh, whoa, I think I might identify as this or I think I might identify. You know, we don't know at at eight that we're this or that or whatever. But sometimes we don't know when we're 40. (laughs) But you know what? To me, if these if these kids feel that they are trans, non-binary, however they want to do it, let them do it. Give them the freedom to be themselves. And if that is who they are for five years great or for the rest of their lives great just give people the freedom to do what feels right Right. for them they know better than you do right and as someone who like i got to 30 and was like well shit i wasn't planning to get this far (laughs) like (laughs) oh damn you mean i got the rest of my life to oh shit (laughs) yeah i mean and you know and like i said if i'm dealing with stuff now coughing on 40 that maybe I could have dealt with this at 17, but I didn't. So yeah. here I am at 40, like, let me figure this the fuck out, you know? Yep. Yep. I just, I don't know. I think it's, um, we shouldn't be in 2024 saying, let people figure out who they are. Let people live as authentically right. as they want to live. As right. they, I mean, they should be able to safely do it. Or affecting I know. you in any way. Just let people do what they're going to do. Let people live. Live and let live. I had a boss who got just viscerally upset when she saw people with like green or blue or pink hair. Because she was like, all they're doing is saying, look at me, look at me. And I'm like, you looked at him, didn't you? You did. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or or they're like, I look really cute. I don't care if I get attention or not. This color makes me feel good. Exactly. I like, oh. I like having purple hair. I don't give a fuck if anybody right. else likes my purple hair. There you hair. go. Exactly. I, I was like, I was like, Janet, nobody's breaking into your office and dyeing your hair green. Like, just <laughs> calm down. I kind of want to. <laughs> right. Now I sort of want to do it out but, of your spite and ugliness. But it's like, but yeah. just, you know, if it's not yeah. affecting you, let it ride. It, and yeah, and, 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 uh, I know this should just be a thing that is just said and accepted and all that. But if you are any of our um, trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming listeners, we love you. We support you. We want the best for you. And whatever we can do to help. I don't know if help is the right word. But support that. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're going to do because... I don't know. I, that's one of my favorite things in this world is knowing people different from me and seeing them live Absolutely. their most authentic life. It is so beautiful to see. And I love it. I'm here for it. Like, And that's like across you the spectrum. You, boo. Like I have friends who are doing the small town wife and mom thing and they're yeah. happy as a pig and shit. And More I'm like, power to that them. sounds like my personal hell. Thing. go you yeah <laughs> you know if that's what makes I you happy yes friends who are in 
polygamous or not polygamous mm-hmm. but like polycules and shit like that and i'm like yep. again my adhd could never but go you but you do you, you. Know? yes if it makes you happy i'm happy for you so anyway yeah that's our discussion so if you skipped you can stop skipping now <laughs> you should we're, we're very uh uh awesome people with awesome shit to say I know. Gee whiz. And speaking of awesome people. I know. We are covering Black Excellence. It has kind of become our theme for every February. We make sure we have a Black Excellence um, episode to celebrate Black History Month. Please keep in mind, Black History is American history. um, And you should study Black History all the time. Um. Uh, don't get me on my soapbox. But I also wanted to say one other thing before. I, I do have the first story. So, unfortunately, if you're not a fan of Sheena, if you listen to this podcast for Lori or Hannah, sorry. <laughs> this is so Sheena heavy at the beginning. Um, but I just wanted to say, too, I want to acknowledge that it is such a privilege to know where your ancestors are buried. To It is such a privilege to be able to trace your, your ancestry in such a clean, beautiful way back to yeah. Europe. Or whatever. Um, because black folks don't always have that same luxury. Right. Because they were stolen. Right. And whatever their name was given at birth. Is not always the right. name that they are given. Or that they are found. If you do find a record of them. Mm-hmm. You don't always see it under whatever name their mother would have preferred to have named them or something. It's it, they're named after I mean, slave I owners. Track, they're named I after. Track, yeah, I can track Donigans all the way back to the 1700s, and I right. know that that's my folks. You know, that's where we came from. Yeah. That well, is and on that privilege, on that it, uh, I, I talk about that a little bit in my story today. Uh, my dude was born into slavery, and they were given the last name of their master. So, yeah. like, their last name is some white dude from the mm-hmm. 1800s. Right. I know. Ridiculous. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. And, and two, and I think I said this earlier, I don't know, when I'm, I have a soapbox and ADHD, so I'm not sure what I've said, but it's a, it's a privilege to know where your ancestors are buried. Black mm-hmm. cemeteries are always targeted for um, just... Let's build on top of this. Let's absolutely yeah. forget that this is sacred gr- ground where people are buried. And I know some states have passed laws to protect black cemeteries. If you see such legislation come up in your state, please support it. Please write your legislators and say, hey, this absolutely. is a cause that's important to me because we have got to preserve these cemeteries and remember these names. Um, I, there is nothing I hate more than cemeteries being built over or tombstones just discarded, whatever. And we are losing. This is someone's loved one. This is someone's ancestor. Their history. Yeah. It's your history. It's, and and stop doing weddings at plantations because there are slaves who's or former enslaved people whose names will never be known to history who are yeah. buried there and have just been forgotten because there was never yeah. a record of them anywhere other than, you know, a slaveholder's record book. Yeah. And, and if some of them named their slaves in those records, some of them didn't. It's just, right. oh, they had 24 slaves and we don't know anything. And it's, oh, 
Mm-hmm. Names right. are very powerful, right. and I can go on a soapbox those, about all that. Like, so unnamed people are buried on those beautiful plantations that you're oh, yeah. have your wedding on, and it's don't do it. Just don't. Um, I will forever agree with um, Jason Mott when he wrote Hell of a Book. He said in there the south, the entire South is a crime scene, and I'm like, yes, it really is because. Yeah, people were being tortured and murdered Everywhere. just because they were black, and it's yeah. horrible. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that that you know we are a podcast we celebrate cemeteries, but it's really difficult sometimes to celebrate our our black folks and say, well, this is where they're buried because we can't always find them, and that right, especially you know. historically speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm going first. <laughs> Um, not gonna soapbox this. I'm, I'm, I have a good story. It's very interesting. So, Savannah, Georgia, one of my favorite cities in the world, has 22 squares in its historic downtown district. Uh, these were planned on day one, so they're in like you know they they have been there since the city was founded. They are all named for important people or moments in Georgia or American history. There is Oglethorpe Square, named after the man who founded the state of Georgia and the city of Savannah. There is Franklin Square, named after Ben Franklin. There is Orleans Square, named after the Battle of New Orleans. And then there was Calhoun Square, named after the seventh vice president of the United States, John Calhoun, who defended the institution of slavery and was a big believer in white supremacy. Yeah. Basically, these squares, some of which, as I said, date back to the city's earliest days in 1730, whatever, 300 years ago, are named after white guys or white guys battles until now. Bitches. So (laughs) uh, picture it. February 10th, 2024. Yes, just a few weeks ago. Savannah, Georgia. John Calhoun's name was ripped off that square in Savannah and it was given a new name. The square is now named. This is the first square in Savannah named after not just a woman, but a black woman. And yes, this black woman is the first black nurse in the Civil War, the first black woman to openly teach formerly enslaved and the first black woman to self publish her memoirs so now that square is called taylor square named for Susie king taylor let's meet Susie. so Susie was born susan ann baker the first of nine kids to raymond and hager ann reed baker on august 6 1848 this makes her a leo and some of those nine children of course died in infancy because it's the 1848 um diseases are going to get you plus because your parents are slaves. They can't take care of you very well or they're malnourished and therefore they can't take care of you. So, you know, there's conditions are awful. Yes. Um, But she, several of her brothers and sisters did survive, but a few of them did die in infancy. Um, So Susie was born into slavery on the um, plantation owned by a guy named Valentine Grest. That's just a name. Can you imagine your name's Valentine? I don't know. I just sounds like a villain. (laughs) I know. That's what I thought too. Um, Anyway, the plantation. Yes. I'm sorry. Unless you're referring to Valentine from the movie Tremors, and then he is excluded from this 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, I think it's the grist that really kind of like you have this very pretty first name and then grist. Yeah. Yeah. So this plantation was on the Isle of Wight in Georgia, which is southwest of Savannah. Um, And a lot of the uh, black folks who lived in the coastal lowlands of Georgia, South Carolina and Florida are Gullah Geechee. She was one of these folks. And I know there are a couple of different. Some people say they're just Gullah. I think some just say they are Geechee. Some say Gullah Geechee. I'm not really sure. I'm just letting you know, generally speaking. Um, When Susie was seven, her grandmother, Dolly Reed, this was her mother's mother, received permission to take Susie to live with her in Savannah. So she moved there with two of her younger siblings. And if you know anything about the pre-Civil War times, you know that educating black folks... Pretty well across the South, but in Georgia, was 100% illegal. You could not educate black folks at all. Um, But of course, Dolly knew that education was incredibly important. So she saw to it that her grandkids were educated. She sent them to an underground school run by a friend named Mrs. Woodhouse, who was a free woman of color. The kids would enter the home to go to school one at a time and they would cover their books in paper so no one would get suspicious that there could be this school happening there were like 25 or 30 kids who attended school with Susie and after she learned all she could from Mrs. Woodhouse Susie was then taught by another free black lady Mary Beasley who was Savannah's first black nun Uh, Susie learned all she could from Mrs. Beasley by 1860, and Mrs. Beasley told Dolly, you're going to have to find a new teacher. I've I've taught her everything I know. Susie became friends with a little white girl, Katie O'Connor, which what a cute little white girl name is that? It is. It very much is. (laughs) I could see the pigtails. I know. Uh, She attended a local convent, and Katie agreed to teach Susie all she knew, but so long as it was secret, because... Of course, if you were caught teaching a black person, you would get in trouble, but not as bad as as the enslaved right. people. They would they would really suffer if they were caught. Um, this was very temporary, though. It only lasted a few months because then Katie entered the convent, so she had to stop teaching Susie. Um, but Susie did find another tutor. The son of their landlord taught her until he left to fight in the Civil War. So by this time, Susie could read and write, which that is huge for black folks at the time, um, both freed and enslaved. She could write passes for black people who were out on the streets after curfew, which kept them from getting arrested. Very important. Once the Civil War began, Susie was sent back to the country to her mother. And Confederate and Union forces fought at Fort Pulaski, which is east of Savannah, kind of between Savannah and Tybee Island. And Susie, her uncle, and his family fled to St. Catherine's Island to ask for protection from the Union Army. And then they were sent to St. Simon's Island. All of these are south of Savannah. And this kind of became like an encampment for freed slaves. And while on the gunboat during their transfer, a Union captain asked Susie where she was from and could she read and write. And she said yes. And he gave her a piece of paper to write down her name and where she was from. And not long after their arrival on St. Simons, another Union officer asked her to take charge and create a school for kids on the island. 
And she said, yes, just give me the books to do this. And they gave her these books. Um, So she started her first school. Keep in mind, my friends, when I was like reading all this and picturing this, I was just, I was not thinking about the time frame whatsoever. So I'm like, okay, she's an adult. No, no, my friends, this is Susie at 13. She is heading up this school by herself as a 13 year old. So she has officially just founded the first free African-American school for children in the area. Um, she also became the first black woman to teach a free school. I mean, this is not just in the area, it's in the state of Georgia. During the day, she taught more than 40 kids, and at night, she taught adults. So nice. get your education, my friends, because, and please don't take your education for granted. Much like um, voting, if it wasn't important, they wouldn't be trying so hard to take it from you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1862, the 33 U.S. colored troops was formed from the men who were living out at St. Simon's. Um, so these are basically these freed men, and they they get them all together to form some troops. They were sent to Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, they were kind of sent throughout the South, but that's one of the main places they were. Susie enrolled with the Army as a laundress, but she really didn't do that much laundry. She did, but not entirely she mostly taught the black soldiers how to read and write um but she also did other things for them like she packed cartridge packs and haversacks i googled that that is like a a little carry-all for the soldiers or as i said in here like a purse (laughs) um (laughs) but i mean i mean i'm sure the men would be like that's not my purse but i mean it's 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 a bag you have that has all your essentials i'm gonna start calling my purse a haversack though there you go um, she was also trusted with the company's muskets. She learned how to clean them, take them apart, put them back together. She enjoyed this. Damn. She thought it was a lot of fun. She liked to, she's supposedly a really great shot. So good for her. During this time, she married Edward King, a non-commissioned officer in the Company E Regiment. And I know she's young for this. Like I said, just a year or so prior, right. she was like 13. But I think that gave her a lot of protection, you know. And so, it was the 18, 1860s, yeah. right? You as know, soon as you yes. hit your period, you were yeah. an adult. Um, I, I God think they, bless. I was 11. I know. I imagine. I was 10. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Jesus, yeah. Sheena. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm tired of it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we're all tired of it. We're tired of it. Um, But yeah, so I, I think this was not a like business move or a strategic thing. I think they really cared for each other, but I do think it was probably a smart move because it did give her some protection. Um, But he was very kind and he was very education minded too. So he helped her educate the soldiers as well. In addition to all of this that she's doing, she's also becoming a nurse and learning how to take care of these incredibly wounded soldiers, which I can't imagine how traumatic and difficult this was. Um, she did this for four years and three months with no pay. None of the black soldiers were paid. They were offered like half pay at one point, And they were like, no, all or nothing, which they eventually got still. Um, and later, Union Army officials were like, oh, you were an Army nurse, but you can't get a pension. Like we, And I'm like, right. y'all. Yeah. Anyway. She took care of the soldiers' wounds, tended to those who had smallpox because she had been vaccinated from smallpox. Again, this woman is brilliant. She gets vaccinated. That's very important, my friends. Get, get your get your shots, okay? 
you nasty little germ havers. I'm saying this specifically to Spencer, who did not get his flu shot this year. And what does he have right now? The flu. Get your flu shots. Get your COVID shots. Anyway. um, Now, she also said that sassafras tea helped her stay immune from it. But we all know it's mostly the vaccine. (laughs) During this time, uh, she met Clara Barton, who founded the Red Cross later on. So that's cool. They they were kind of buddies, I think. But I'm like, I don't know. I feel like this should be Clara Barton got to meet Susie King Taylor. Not, ooh, she got to meet Clara. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Yeah. Yep. Um, Now, I thought this was interesting. And I included this because I read Susie's book. I'm including this as as a note to our dear friend, Nikki Haley. Uh-oh. I need her to listen to this. So in one part of her book, which we're going to get to her book in a minute, she talked about bearing, being near the line of con- a line of Confederate soldiers. And sometimes the Confederate soldiers would call over to the Union soldiers in this black troop that she's in and ask for food or tobacco. And eventually, some of them left the Confederate side to join the Union side. Do you know what their reasoning was? This is a direct quote. They, quote, had no Negroes to fight for. So tell me, what what is the, the Civil War about? Is it about states' rights or is it about owning people? Yeah. Because these soldiers are saying, hey, we don't even own people. Why are we, do- why are we fighting for someone else to be able to people. own other people? This makes no sense. So... Yeah, what was what was it about? Yeah. Gosh, I, I love that argument. I do love it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, crazy. Yeah, I mean, literally, these soldiers are like, "Well, we we don't own anyone, so why should we be in this fighting?" Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yes, Nikki Haley, this has always been a racist country. Anyway, <laughs> I am on some soapboxes this morning. <laughs> We love for, it for it. For me to not have had any caffeine either. This is just my general rage and anger at racism and people who don't like trans people and all that. Anyway, okay, so after the war, the war is over. Susie and her husband Edward moved to Savannah. Uh, Edward was a skilled carpenter, but he couldn't find work because this is the South and you were a newly free black person. You were very skilled. They don't have to hire you because they don't like you. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, anyway, uh, he went on to work as a longshoreman, which was not his, you know, trade of choice. Susie, meanwhile, opened a school for African-American children who she called Children of Freedom. And Aww. she opened a night school, night school for adults. But unfortunately, in September 1866, Edward was killed in a docking accident while working as a longshoreman. And this was right before she gave birth to their first child. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, Susie, uh, she had the baby. Baby grew up, as far as I know. There's not a whole lot on her kids. We'll talk about that later. Um, Susie opened a school um, and ran these schools for a while. And she charged families like a dollar a month to educate their kid then they started opening up these free charter schools for black kids so they were sending the kids to the free schools so she couldn't earn a living teaching anymore so she sent her baby to live with her mother and she went to work as a domestic servant for a well uh wealthy white family the greens 
But she traveled with the Greens to Boston one summer, and this really kind of um, opened up a lot of doors and stuff for her because she'd always heard about the North. And, you know, back then the white folks would be like, oh, Yankees are terrible. They hate black people. If you go up North, oh, they'll kill it. They lied to them. Yeah. Yeah, all that. But she had heard from enough Union officers. She knew that the North was not perfect, but better. Um, So she fell in love with Boston. While she was up there, she won a cooking contest, which what can't this woman do? Um, Anyway, she traveled again to Boston in 1874. She started working for a family there, and she basically builds a life in Boston. And she worked for a couple other families until she married her second husband, Russell Taylor, in 1879. Now, during these years, she became a civil rights activist She wrote about lynchings in the South, Jim Crow laws, and the KKK. She tried to help Afro-Cubans at the end of the Spanish-American War because she saw how they were uh, fighting discrimination um, just the way she did during Reconstruction. And then what I like about her, again, I I hope some lawmakers are listening, even though I know they're not. She fought against the United Daughters of the Confederacy in their campaign to rid slavery from school curriculums. Imagine that. Imagine that. Basically, what they said was a local school was going to put on a production of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they were like, no, that that that's too violent for the kids. (laughs) And Susie was like, oh, so living through it wasn't violent enough for them. I have a good quote from her about that later. Anyway, uh, Susie also helped organize Core 67 of the Women's Relief Corps. This basically was a group that helped uh, Union veterans in 1886. She held a lot of positions in that group. And then in 1893, she was elected president. In 1896, she helped complete a roster of Civil War veterans, specifically Union soldiers living in Massachusetts, and that would help benefit her comrades. That was a huge undertaking. In 1898, her son, who I'm guessing is the son she had with Edward, and I can never find his name. I have no idea who this son is, what his name is. He was living in Louisiana, and he got really, really sick. So she traveled from Louisiana, um, or she traveled from Boston to Louisiana, and in her book, which again, we're going to get to her book, she, it is horrifying to her to go from a land where no one thinks twice about black folks sitting in the same cable car to in the South, you have to sit in the smoking section, you have to sit in the back, you have to, you know, um, it was just really, and then she saw lynchings and all this happening in the South and she's like, holy cow, the South has not changed one bit, you know, um, her husband, oh, her son did die in 1898 or 1899, um, they would only transport his body back up north on, or she could only move him in this certain kind of cable car that he wouldn't be able to survive the trip because he was black. They don't care. Um, so he was buried, I think, in New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken. And then her husband, Russell, passed away in 1901 at the age of 49. I'm not sure why. Um, But in 1902, Susie self-published her memoirs called Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops, Late 1st South Carolina Volunteers. And I found this book online. You can find this book online. Very easy to find. Quick reads, like 100 pages. Um, I highly recommend it. Some of her talking about 
being a nurse during the Civil War, it really puts it in perspective. She talks about like walking in between the battle lines and stuff and finding skulls everywhere, like just all over the place. And they don't know. She doesn't know if they are Union or Confederate. She Those wants to like. The injuries were brutal. The injuries are horrific. Um, it's it. Yeah. So she talks about all that. It, it's a fascinating book. And then she talks a lot about the state of America today, which we will get to that. Um, anyway, uh, Susie died October 6, 1912, at the age of 64. I don't know what she died from. I'm going to assume it's natural causes. Nothing I read made me think it was anything other than probably that. She was buried in Mount Hope Cemetery in Boston in the same plot as her husband, Russell. They uh, He had a monument, but her name was never added to it. No one ever just went back and fixed it. Until October 2021, when Boston Mayor Kim Janey dedicated a new memorial headstone that includes her name, a photo, and a brief biography. And this monument was paid for by the Massachusetts branch of the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. So good for them. Yeah. Um, Mount Hope Cemetery was originally founded as a private cemetery in 1852, but then it was purchased by the city of Boston. There are some cool white people who are buried there, but the f- black folks who are buried there are way cooler. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. Um, some of the notable black people who were also buried there include Luther Snake Boy Johnson, tenor Roland Hayes, Will Cannonball Jackman, one of the best Negro League baseball pitchers. And this is, I'm sorry, but adorable. A guy named George Dixon, a.k.a. Little Chocolate, the first black boxer to win a world title. Okay. Part of me is like, I don't, I, 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 don't, I think that's racist. I don't think that's a good idea. But at the same time, I don't know. Maybe that was his idea. I don't know. But he was the first black boxer to win a world title. That's pretty rad. Susie has been honored in several ways over the last several years. She's finally getting her flowers, which I love. Susie, uh, there is the Susie King Taylor Women's Institute and Ecology Center established in in Midway, Georgia in 2015. The Susie King Taylor Community School also opened in Savannah in 2015, and that's not far from a sort marker for her. And she was inducted into the Georgia Women of Achievement Hall of Fame in 2018. And then, of course, in 2024, Calhoun Square was renamed Taylor Square in honor of Susie. Now, speaking of Taylor Square, this is the only square in Savannah with all of its original buildings intact. I didn't know that. That's kind of rad. But it's very important, too. This sem- this square was originally a cemetery for enslaved black Savannians. They named this square after a racist white man. Like I'm not shocked. Go figure. I'm, yeah. I'm not shocked, but again, I'm so angry. But they thank God have renamed it the Susie King Taylor Square, or at least Taylor Square anyway. Um, it's estimated that more than a thousand bodies are buried there. I saw that in 1855 they moved some bodies to Laurel Grove. But then in t- 2004, a skull was found by utility workers who were working on the square. So obviously there's got to be some bodies still there, which that's kind of Savannah anyway. They say Savannah is a city built on its dead. So I'm sure they have bodies here, there, and yonder. Yeah. Yon- yonder. 
Now, I will say this, and this is, I just, this really, y'all know me, I'm a nerd. I'm nerding out today. I thought this was really beautiful. Initially, they wanted to rename the square after the, and I'm going to probably butcher this, Sankofa bird, which is a Ghanaian symbol, an African symbol, expressing the importance of knowing one's history. Is that not lovely? That is beautiful. Yeah, I love that. But eventually they did vote to name it Taylor Square. They uh, removed Calhoun's name in 2022. And then in 2023, they named it after Susie. And then they actually had the ceremony uh, this month. So I have one or two quotes if y'all want to hear them. I do. Unless y'all are tired of me talking. Um, I will start with the quote. This is from her book where she's talking about the daughters of the Confederacy being up in arms that, oh, how dare we want to teach slavery in schools. Do these Confederate daughters ever send petitions to prohibit the atrocious lynchings and wholesale murdering and torture of the Negro? Do you ever hear them fearing this would have a bad effect on children? Which of these two, the drama or the present state of affairs, makes a degrading impression upon the minds of our young generation? In my opinion, it is not Uncle Tom's cabin, but it should be the one that calls the whole world to cry shame. It does not seem as if our land is yet civilized. So, yeah, I think it is. I agree with her there. I think when you're watching... um. George Floyd get murdered on the streets. I think that's more damaging than Uncle Tom's right. cabin. Right. Call me crazy. Um, but this is just her quote in general about how the country really has not moved on and gotten better, which unfortunately still applies. In this quote, land of the free, we are burned, tortured, and denied a fair trial, murdered for any imaginary wrong conceived in the brain of the Negro-hating white man. There is no redress for us from a government which promised to protect us, to protect all under its flag. It seems a mystery to me. They say one flag, one nation, one country indivisible. Is this true? Can we say this truthfully? When one race is allowed to burn, hang, and inflict the most horrible torture weekly, monthly on one another? No, we cannot sing my, t- my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. It is a hollow mockery. Ooh. Bam! Mic drop. I love her for this. Hell now, yeah. she does say, you know, I'm aware not all white people. She basically says that in her book. <laughs> right. But she's like, enough of them. So, yeah, yeah that, is, that is the incredible Susie King Taylor. I think she's an incredible lady. And I'm so happy that she is getting her flowers and receiving some recognition. Awesome. Absolutely. That's really cool. All right, Lou Who. <laughs> mine's, my, y'all, mine's crazy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Because I was inspired by a picture for my story this week. Ooh. Awesome. So, yes, as I was looking for ideas for this week, I came across a photo of a man that was so fabulous. I was like, I don't care where he's buried. I don't know anything about him. I've never heard of him, but I'm going to find out about him. Uh, And my main source for today's story is his autobiography uh, published in 1907. And I can pretty much guarantee that most of what he writes in his uh, autobiography probably is untrue or <laughs> a very uh, fictionalized account of his experiences. Either way, we are talking about the famous black cowboy, 
Nate Love, whose autobiography, published in 1907, has one of the longest and most ridiculous names ever. I love old-timey book names that are like paragraphs long. Gird your loins, ladies. (laughs) It is called (laughs) The Life and Adventures of Nate Love, better known in the cattle country as Deadwood Dick, (laughs) by himself, a true history of slavery days, life on the great cattle ranges, and on the plains of the wild and woolly west, based on (laughs) facts and personal experiences of the author. I love it. All right. He's like, I'm going to get it all out right yeah. at the top. Yes. Y'all are going to know what you're getting into. And also, both you- of both of those names are great. Both Dead Eye Dick and Nate Love. Like, love Deadwood. it. Deadwood. Dick. Deadwood, sorry. Dead you're Eye okay. Dick. What a, I'm thinking of the band. Wasn't there a band called Dead Eye Dick? I think there might have I have no idea, but probably. Oh, God. You're if making there, me feel if, old. If there wasn't, there should be. That's I, thought that, I thought it was a, a one hit wonder from the 90s google it girl i don't know i am i'm doing a side goog yes i'm gonna wait for you to to do this so a rock if- trio um was their song that was their song yes dead eye dick from <laughs> new orleans they got it the name from a kurt vonnegut no- novel of course yeah um looks like new age girl might have been their big hit. Okay, yes, that was okay. their one big hit from June 1994. Oh, it was in this, and then they had something, something from Dumb and Dumber, which God knows I never saw that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. There you go. Sheena taking over again. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, sorry. It's okay. Now we're getting into it. So Nathan, Nate Love, um, and you'll see his name is spelled N-A-T, but it is pronounced Nate. So mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not incorrectly pronouncing this y'all uh he was born into slavery in davidson county tennessee which is near nashville sometime in june of 1854 i think like everything you read about him says it's like june 14th or 15th but he says i don't know because at the t- that wasn't important enough to to write down Record. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly um his mother kind of managed the kitchen she was like the head of the kitchen of their master robert love and his father samson was the slave foreman which i can't imagine that was a fun job no air bunnies around the word job um he uh nate would recall that robert love was like he was all right he was an okay dude um but after the emancipation proclamation he didn't tell him that oh by the way you're free they just kind of kinda, well they just kind of let it roll and apparently that was fairly common and eventually it yes was. they 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 learned that they are free <sighs> and uh yeah it's, so it's like january 1863 uh nate and his family which included a sister named sally and a brother named jordan they're like well we kind of like it here i mean you know we don't mind old robert he wasn't terrible um we're gonna rent 20 acres and do some sharecropping their first harvest was comprised of corn and tobacco but it wasn't great and within the first couple of years samson became ill and died leaving the operation of the farm to young nate and his mother 
so so yeah, it, it they struggled. Like they had to kind of compensate with gathering nuts in the woods and selling those to to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. He learned he had a natural ability to break horses, and so he made some extra cash for the family by training horses for a nearby uh, horse owner at twenty five cents a head. Oh, and. But when he was 15, he was like, this isn't really the life for me. I want to try my luck out west. But at first, he needed to save money. So again, the first tall tale to come out of uh, Nate Love, he said he paid 25 cents for a raffle ticket for a horse. He won. Mm-hmm. He realized, awesome. Nah, I don't really need a horse. So he sold it back to the owner for 50 bucks. Yeah, pretty good. Okay. Yeah. The horse was put up for raffle again. Okay, he bought another ticket. Miraculously, he won the horse again. (laughs) Wow. And sold it again for $50. So now he has $100. Um, His uncle had moved into the, with the family. And uh, so Nate was like, okay, I don't have to worry about my mom and my sister anymore. Um, So he gave his mom 50 bucks. He took 50 bucks and he made his way to Dodge City, Kansas in February of 1869. Not long after arriving, he met with a group of cowboys from Texas that were getting ready to head back after delivering a herd of cattle. He asked them for a job, but admitted to the boss he had no experience as a cowboy. The boss had him saddle up a horse he called Good Eye to test his horsemanship. And Nate would recall, quote, this proved to be the worst horse horse to ride I had ever mounted in my life but I stayed with him and the cowboys were the most surprised outfit you ever saw as they had taken me as a tenderfoot pure and simple (laughs) he was hired on the spot and given a monthly salary of 30 bucks which online calculator inflation only goes back to 1913 but I would say it's probably around a thousand dollars in today's money So, you know, not too shabby for the time. Yeah. And it was here he was given his first nickname, Red River Dick. (laughs) We we also dedicate this episode to Hannah's dad. (laughs) I know. There's going to be a dick in every episode from here on out. I'm here for it. I had a dick last last week. And yeah. Yeah. So apparently Nate excelled at his role and became well known as a brand reader meaning that he could read the different brands of all the cattle because at this point, you know, barbed wire hadn't been invented yet. Cattle just kind of were running amok. And so he could tell if somebody else's cows were mixed in with their cows, if somebody had been fucking with the brands and trying to change them. So he was sought after for this ability. Now you would think, even though it's, you know, the West and, and things are different here, that racism might be an issue. But he made no mention of meeting with any discrimination on his time. In fact, historians estimate that about one in four cowboys working in the West at the time were men of color. Mm. But they also know that they were not equal as their white counterparts because they often faced discrimination in towns and cities. Uh, They wouldn't be able to eat in certain restaurants or stay in certain hotels. So I don't know. Again. Nate really didn't go into details. It was very fantastical and, oh, it was amazing. I loved it. All of this. 
Uh, and he admired his fellow cowboys. He wrote, quote, a braver, truer set of men never lived than these wild sons of the plains whose home was in the saddle and their couch, Mother Earth, with the sky for a covering. They were always ready to share their blanket and their last ration with a less fortunate fellow companion and always assisted with each other in the many trying situations that were continually coming up in a cowboy's life. That's nice. Yes. So the bulk of his autobiography recounts the years he spent driving cattle back and forth, Mexico, Arizona, the Dakotas. Um, And that included getting into many altercations with the native tribes of the region. In fact, during one cattle drive in October of 1876, he was riding by himself trying to round up some stragglers. He found himself in a high-speed horse chase with a tribe of Native Americans led by a chief named Yellow Dog. Although Nate was able to take out a few of his attackers, I think he killed five and injured three with his trusty Winchester rifle, his horse was eventually shot out from under him as a bullet went through his leg and into the horse. Oh, no. He used the horse as a shield and continued to fight until he ran out of bullets, and then he engaged them in hand-to-hand combat. Oh, jeez. Beating, beating them with his, his gun. He eventually... Cracker, dude. Yeah. Eventually, <laughs> eventually blacked out, and when he came to, he was in the tribe's village, and his wounds had been dressed with some herbal salve uh, that he claimed was like it on a stick like the best medicine ever (laughs) i'm sure Uh, it was yeah he had bullet wounds in his leg and chest which the one in his chest somehow missed his heart additionally his nose and one of his fingers had been nearly cut off during the fight he didn't know why they kept him alive but he assumed now this is a direct quote so don't come at me for some of the things this man says in this quote quote i think It was, I think, partly because I had proved myself a brave man, and all savages admire a brave man, and when they captured a man whose fighting powers were out of the ordinary, they generally kept him, if possible, as he was needed in the tribe. Oh, Oh, wow. Um, There's nothing I hate more than when they use the word savages to talk about Native Americans, because, oh my God, stop it. Anyway, obviously, it's, it's... it, it, yes, it's wrong. It was the times. Um, and speaking of the nose thing, like if you look at pictures of him later in life, that nose has never been nearly cut off, man. You know, <laughs> uh, so so he liked to exaggerate. There's nothing there, wrong with a, sta- a storyteller. Yes, he said, and look, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I was exactly, just about to say that exactly. So as he recovered, the tribe introduced him to their customs, teaching him their different dances, and even piercing his ears with a piece of deer bone and deer tendon. Uh, And they gave him the name Buffalo Papoose. Oh, that's cute! Buffalo Papoose. I love it. Like, Papoose? Like the baby thing? I would assume. Okay. <laughs> this guy is racking up the best names ever. Yeah. Uh, and Chief Yellow Dog was so impressed with him that he invited him to stay with the tribe and offered up his daughter to be Nate's bride. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm sure she was. I hope she was. He said, he said she was very eager age. and willing. Of course. Okay. I, well, I don't, so. need, I don't I know about so. that. Uh, 
and he he kind of went along with it for a bit, but he was waiting for the perfect opportunity to escape. Um, so as time went on, they became more relaxed, you know, less security around him. And uh, he snuck out of his tent one night and took the fastest horse. And allegedly, he rode 100 miles in 12 hours to return to the ranch. And everyone was shocked that he was what there. What kind alive. of fucking horse was this? I know. I'm like, okay, man. I don't know about that. So, and now, so we're going to backtrack a little bit because one of his most notable adventures came earlier that same year, over the 4th of July, when he competed in a Mustang breaking competition with a $200 purse in Deadwood, South Dakota. The trail boss picked a group of Mustangs for the competition, and the man who was able to, quote, rope, throw, tie, bridle, and saddle and mount the particular horse picked for us in the shortest time possible would win. And good old Nate managed to tame his horse in nine minutes, making him champion and setting a record that would never be beaten. Okay. I love it. His nearest competitor did it in 12 minutes. So not even close. Not even close by a little bit. I love this guy. (laughs) He also claimed, quote, right there, the assembled crowd named me Deadwood Dick and proclaimed me champion roper of the Western cattle country. Yeah, they did. Following Dick coming from, from the name Nate. I still don't don't get it. Oh, I don't know, because it's like Redwood Dick. And then, like, so I read, it wasn't super interesting, so I didn't include it, but uh, apparently there was, like, a dime novel about the adventures of a cowboy named Deadwood Dick, and so... They're, okay. That it, fe- it feels like that that's kind of what it was in reference to, but he was in Deadwood, so, like, right. whatever. From then on, everyone knew of the legendary Deadwood Dick everywhere he went, but I should note that there is no record of any such event taking place. <laughs> Why uh, would there be? Also, I, I skipped this part, but so apparently after this roping competition, there was a shooting competition and he easily hit the bullseye with 14 shots from his Winchester. Of course. And quote, this gave me the championship of rifle and revolver shooting as well as the roping contest. And for that day, I was the hero of Deadwood. Yes. We need to like go back in time and have a drink with this man. He, I'm telling you, I think lot. he would be... A lot of fun to hang out with. Yes. Uh, He continued the Western way of life, claimed to at one point have been acquaintances with Billy the Kid and Buffalo Bill, among others. Oh, my. Uh, At one point, he met and fell in love with a Mexican girl. Uh, He did become fluent in Spanish at this point. And he made plans to marry her. But not long after they made these plans, she became ill and died. In El Paso, by any chance? (laughs) <laughs> and he he never gave her her name or anything like that. So of course. He has a the... girlfriend, but she goes to another school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. By the late 1880s, westward expansion and the invention of barbed wire made the need for a traditional cowboy like mate kind of a thing of the past. So as more cities began popping up, he found he was no longer in love with that way of life and decided, I'm gonna try something else. He moved to Denver, where he met and married a woman named Alice Owens. And kind of like your story, Sheena, it's there's 
very little information about their children. Like, I know they had children. They had at least one daughter, but no child is mentioned in either of their obituaries. One of the photos I found of Nate and his wife includes a older girl. So I'm mm-hmm. assuming that's their daughter. Uh, but he doesn't mention any children at all in his autobiography. Oh, gosh. Ouch. Yeah. So, Damn. If, well, he's too busy talking about himself, man. Yeah. <laughs> Bless his heart. I uh, love it. So after they settled in Denver, he got his first job as a Pullman porter. Uh, and he didn't enjoy it after his first trip. So he quit and began selling like fruits and nuts and vegetables from a wagon. Then he decided to try his luck at being a Pullman again. And eventually the family settled in Los Angeles. Uh, and the latter half of the book is super, super boring because it talks about his, his role as a Pullman porter and all of his lack of uh, it was so boring y'all. i had to skip it <laughs> you can actually google the book and read the entire thing on yeah. yeah yeah that's what i did with Susie's. i imagine yeah. yeah they're definitely out of uh copyright yeah yeah uh so he his last job was as a courier and guard for a securities company and then he died in 1921 at 67 years old uh i don't know what he died of there's no mention of it um, and he would be buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica. Alice Love would live until October of 1946 when she oh, died wow. at 101 years old. Good Damn. for her. Good. Get it, Alice. Yes. So she was laid to rest next to her husband. And their marker is really small. But it does note Nate's status as a famous black cowboy. However, his nickname is inscribed as Bradford Dick. So I'm not sure who put the headstone there and just completely fucked up his nickname. Uh, (laughs) And as for Alice, her little epitaph notes that she lived to be 101 and she was a loving wife. Aw. Good for you, Alice. Yeah. In popular culture, Nate was played by Ernie Hudson in the 1996 Made for TV movie, The Cherokee Kid, co-starring Sinbad. Ernie Hudson, Winston. I love Ernie. I love Ernie. He's so cool. Ernie Hudson. Uh, Good people. Most most recently, by convicted abuser Jonathan Majors, who I hate the passion, uh, in the Netflix movie The Harder They Fall, which is a fictional account, fictional, like not even. Anything right. like the autobiography account of Love's life and rivalry with another famous black cowboy who was, albeit an outlaw, named Rufus Buck. So this movie portrayed him as an outlaw, and that's not the case at all. But I Why? want a good movie with him, like Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. Like, yeah. Fantastic. No, absolutely. Well, and like, if you look at it, he's like, y'all, Google N-A-T, love, real quick. And the picture that pops up of this man and his fabulous hair and his cowboy hat. And they have Jonathan Goofy-Ass Majors playing him in a movie. Nothing like him. Doesn't have the hair. This guy, look, the hair is epic. Like, seriously. Epic. Swagger. It is swagger for days. I wonder if Um, he had some native blood though i wonder that too I because those cheekbones are gorgeous 
He's he's he is beautiful. I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, because right. there was a lot of uh, mixed blood at the time. But yeah, no. Uh, um, yeah, I and I was gonna say why? Yeah, and why fictionalize? His already possibly fictionalized autobiography, autobiography right? if it is so entertaining and full of all these different adventures. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it is nuts. And again, I, mean, I can now imagine Lenny Kravitz playing him. Shut up. <laughs> Shut yes. up. I'm here for it. it. No. I mean, it's... even this painting of him has more swagger than anything ever like he is just like he's got this hip cocked like i am cooler than you will ever be like he's so cool yeah so that to happen it's it's amazing and i'm like i've seen like there have been like historical like museums that'll have actors portray the characters from the past yeah and even those guys have a wig with the curls and right yeah and i'm like jonathan majors who I have never liked even before the abuse scandal. I just, I always I, got a weird I vibe. Got a bad from, vibe. I did not like him in uh, Loki. That was the first thing I saw him in was Loki. Uh, never liked this dude. And then, you know, ah, there's a legitimate reason why. He's a piece of shit abuser. Um, and he's ruining the Marvel Cinematic Universe, apparently. Their, their whole plans. I'm like, completely off topic, but just recast him. I mean, there are plenty of super talented right. black actors that don't beat up people that would love to have the opportunity to play that role. Seriously. Yeah. Anyway, so that is the story of Mr. Nathan Deadwood Tick Love. I love, love him. Famous black love cowboys him. of the Old West and not I an outlaw. It. Bless. If you're listening, Hollywood, we want this movie. Yes. Yeah, we do. If I can, if you guys can do like 15 Fast and the Furious movies, <laughs> I know you can I do know. this one. I'm, I, I know. believe in you. Yep. Okay. Now for All right, Hannah. Completely different. Yes, I've gone <laughs> off the rails, and I don't know where you're taking us. Oh, we're yeah. going straight off the rails. <laughs> we are. You know how in Roller Coaster Tycoon, you could like have them just go. That's gonna be us. <laughs> Uh, I messaged the girls this morning and was like, it's going to be really long because I'm stupid excited. So awesome. Here for it. Get ready with me. Uh, Earl Simmons, better known as the rapper DMX. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yes, Hannah. Yes. I love you for this. <laughs> um, was born on December 18th, 1970, which I believe makes him a Sagittarius. Sounds um, right. In Mount Vernon, New York. For, so for those of you who do not know me personally and are wondering why the girls are so excited, I, like, spiritually, I am DMX. Like, <laughs> X gonna give it to you, like, is, is like, my anthem. Like, Can I yes, tell you- I'm, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, one of my core memories of DMX is that terrible, terrible Steven Seagal movie he did called Exit Wounds. Like, that is the core memory I have whenever somebody mentions DMX. It's not his musical record. It's that stupid fucking movie with Steven Seagal. The soundtrack (laughs) for it was fantastic. Exactly. No, but I mean, like, yeah, seriously. But yes, no. Awful. Best thing of that movie was DMX. Yes. So I love DMX. X gonna give it to you. Party up. 
I'm gonna haunt to Gasolina, but if Gasolina is not available, X gonna give it to you is gonna be my haunting song. <laughs> you can have two because so, you might get burned you know out. What? Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, your afterlife is never ending. So yeah. exactly. I'm gonna switch it up on him. Yeah, okay. Alternate. So he was born in 1970 in Mount Vernon, New York. He was the son of 19-year-old Arnett Simmons and 18-year-old Joe Barker. Simmons had already had a two-year-old at the time. A lot of good choices being made here. Um, his father painted water watercolor paintings of street scenes to sell at local fairs, and then oh, wow. moved to Philly, and that's kind of where that ends for him. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about his impact, then we're going to get into his life, because um, like I said, this is long. So, DMX had a significant impact on hip-hop and is considered a legend in the genre. He is credited for having defined 2000s rap and for being among... Mm -hmm. The most prolific rappers of the area of the era, keep that in mind. Uh, his early work was vastly different from most of the mainstream hip hop at the time. Uh, while Puff Daddy, or I think he goes just by Diddy now, and the other artists of like the Bad Boy Records label were at the height of popularity, characterized by their big budget videos, lavish party throwing, and dance floor ready music. So that was the club bops of the day. DMX had a more dark, aggressive, rugged, and less marketable style. It's not something white people immediately wanted to dance to. According to an Apple Music radio host, it was a complete 180. Puff was controlling the clubs. You were watching Bad Boy Records pop bottles, wear Rolexes, Jesus pieces, kooky sweaters. Then there comes this crazy, energetic figure from Yonkers with the Tims and the bandanas running around with pit bulls, giving a perspective on the... Of on the streets that a lot of people weren't familiar with and taking command of what hip-hop didn't look like. DMX's commercially successful violent lyricism also helped pop popularize the horrorcore genre. He wasn't just a prolific rapper. <laughs> he was the father of 17 children from 11 different women. I Man! I did not and know that. Oh, Earl yes. Man. Or, uh, oh, yes. what What's the word you use? Very virile. Um, he was also in jail more than 30 times. Yeah, I knew he had a pretty violent, so, I don't know that um, violent's the right word. It, not all of He's, them were violent. He served, his, them, he served his time. He had some, some drug, some drugs. Um, yeah. Some, we're going to get into it. Um, yeah. He liked to rap, fuck, and go to jail. <laughs> um, his, so... More than 30 times throughout his lifetime for various offenses, including criminal possession of weapons, robbery, assault, carjacking, animal cruelty. I'm going to put animal cruelty in quotes here because he was doing some like backyard breedy type shit. And there might mm -hmm. have been some dog fighting, but I don't know. So, um, but we're going to get into like him and his, his pets. Um, reckless yeah. driving, driving under the influence, unlicensed driving, drug possession, probation violation, failure to pay child support. Pretending to be a federal agent and tax evasion. I would love, love to see him pretending to be a federal agent. Be like Sam oh, and Dean. Like it, that was my exact thought when I was writing this part. I was just like, so he was like supernatural. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Though I would love to see him in supernatural. That would have been great. I know. So how, how did he get there? Well, in his childhood years, he suffered physical violence from his mom. Alas, um, he was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, but 
didn't really stick with that. At the age of five, he was sent to live with relatives in the Yonkers School Street housing apartments. He was expelled from a middle school at the age of 10 and sent to a group home. He returned to Yonkers at the age of 15, slept in empty storage containers, and befriended stray dogs. Which is why I think the animal cruelty thing, I'm like, he seemed to always have a really big connection with Mm -hmm. animals. Broke, he robbed several students to find food and clothing for himself, as well as buy a leather collar and harness for his dog. Can't be all bad. Yeah. He did also do some light carjacking. Just a little light carjacking. Yeah, no Um, big deal. His rap career began in 1985 when he beatboxed for a local rapper named Ready Ron. They would do small shows together where Ron would perform as a rapper and DMX would beatbox and provide ad-libs. After some time, he realized Ron was becoming more prominent on the scene, so he decided to start rapping himself under the name DMX, an acronym for Divine Master of the Unknown, and later Dark Man X. He claimed to have become addicted to crack cocaine when he was 14 years old after Ron tricked him into smoking a lace joint. Ron denied this claim after his death, but, you know, there you are. Yeah, and let's not forget who introduced drugs to the two black communities. Yes, especially crack cocaine. Yeah. Yeah, this is about the time for that, too. Yes, it is. So... DMX was first sent to prison in 1986 for stealing a dog from a junkyard. He served a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. He served a couple of months in the juvenile unit of the Woodfield Prison in Valhalla, New York. Later that year, he was sentenced to two years for another crime and sent to Industry Institution in upstate New York. However, in December of 1986, just a few days after starting his sentence, he and his cellmate successfully escaped the prison. And he returned home, and then his mom told him to go back. No! Look, my mom would have hid me, so I don't know what y'all talk about. (laughs) Um he did finish his sentence at the McCormick Juvenile Detention Center in Brooktondale, New York. He went to prison again in 1988 for carjacking and was later moved to a higher security prison after attempting to extort a fellow inmate for drugs. Oh, no. Bless him. Baby. While in prison for carjacking, he began dedicating more of his free time to writing lyrics and doing rap battles with other inmates. He created a style called Spellbound, where he spelled out, where he spelled each word out letter by letter. Um, which I always think of Fergie and how she has to spell in every single <laughs> song. He does. He was released in the summer of 1988. For three years, he's like kind of building his craft. He's he's you know trying to get known. Um, but in 1991, he was signed to a management deal with the then unknown record label Rough Riders Entertainment. Which always sound like a porn group to me, but you know what? <laughs> it was the 90s. It was a different time. Yeah. Later that year, Columbia Records signed him to its subsidiary labels, Chaos Records and Rough House Records, which released his major debut single, Born Loser, in 1993. It didn't really do well, didn't really chart, um, so they terminated his contract and he just, he went indie. Um really struggled in the industry for a couple of years and then his friend and associate Irv Gotti who I only know because he gets name checked in other hip hop songs <laughs> um, became president of A&R at Def Jam 
Um, after showcasing for then president Lear Conan Cohen, DMX was signed to Jeff Jeff Jam in May of 1997. Jeff Jam is of course huge in the American hip hop, you know, world. Um, they're yep. who we have to thank for its popularity now. So. 1997 he goes into the booth he recorded tracks from april to january of 98 for his debut album he also did features on singles from mace the locks and ll cool j and february of 1988 he released his major debut his debut major label single get me a dog on def jam the single received a gold certification his first major label album it's dark and hell is hot which included the single Rough Riders Anthem, was released in May of 1998. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 in the U.S. and sold over 5 million copies. Yes, bitch! In December of 1988, he released Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. It debuted number one on the Billboard 200 and went multi-platinum. DMX became the only rapper alive to have his first two consecutive numbers number one billboard albums within a one year period so seven months he had two um albums debut on at number yeah one. that's huge and the first since tupac shakur he was oh, the wow. only one who had done it before then he released his third album then there was x on december 21st 1999 it was his third album to debut at number one on the billboard 200 its most popular single party up which you all know uh mm -hmm. became his first top 10 hit on the r&b charts and was nominated for a grammy for best solo rap performance at the 200 or 2001 grammy awards it was six times platinum and also nominated for best rap album at the grammys that year and this is going to take some of us back. In the late 2000, he joined <laughs> other hip-hop and new metal artists on the Anger Management Tour. Oh, my God, yeah. alongside Lip Biscuit and Godsmack for the second <laughs> half of the tour. Oh, boy. Do I ever remember that era? We're not going to talk yep. about it. We're going to keep it moving. <laughs> he released his album, The Great Depression, in October of 2001. It was his fourth album to debut at number one on the Billboard 200. Included the singles Who We Be, We Right Here, and I Miss You. This album went triple platinum. Oh, however, all the success did not keep our boy out of trouble. During this time, he served a 15-day jail sentence for possession of marijuana. He served another jail sentence in 2001 for driving without a license and possession of marijuana. His appeal to reduce the sentence was denied. Rather, he was charged with assault for throwing objects at prison guards. Baby. Bless his heart. In January of 2002, he pleaded guilty in New Jersey to 13 counts of animal cruelty, two counts of maintaining a nuisance, and one count each of disorderly conduct and possession of drug paraphernalia. He eventually plea bargained down to fines, probation, and community service, and starred in public service announcements against the dangers of guns and animal abuse. Which, again, I think, I don't know that he was fighting dogs, but I, I'm sure he was unethically breeding pit bulls. That would be my guess. Pit bulls were his thing, though. Like, they were, he loved they were them. very much his thing. And, it, like, looking at his childhood where, like, his first couple of crimes were stealing dogs or stealing for his dogs. I'm like, okay, you know what? It, I get it. It's, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's doing his best. 
During the 90s, DMX had formed a close bond with fellow up-and-coming rappers Jay-Z and Ja Rule. I wonder what happened to them. <laughs> the three collaborated many times and formed a group known as Murder, Inc., which if you've listened to a Ja Rule song, you have heard him name drop that a few times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the group was short-lived due to internal issues between DMX and Jay-Z. Who can imagine? Those two. I know. Wow. Surely not. <laughs> After the breakup of Murder, Inc., DMX disparaged Ja Rule in interviews, accusing him of being a copycat, drawing comparisons between himself and what he saw as Ja stealing his signature gruff style of delivery. I could see it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, he released a diss track called They Want War on a 2002 mixtape. Ja Rule never directly responded. Uh, he also released the single Go to Sleep with Eminem and Obi Trice, which I absolutely remember because all of the guys in my high school sang it in the hallways <laughs> my junior senior year. You know, I was like, please, I need you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, 2002, so this would have been my senior year. They were annoying me to hell with that. <laughs> and it was part of the uh, Cradle to the Grave soundtrack that he had several lines directed at Ja Rule. He was also in the movie Cradle to the to the grave so his fifth album grand champ released in september 2003 once again debuted at number one becoming his final album in his lifetime to do so it included the singles where the hood at and get it on the floor i hearing my extremely white voice say i was just about to say that there's nothing i I love more than sweet i mean i know you're not like 100 percent white Right, but, but yes, I have a very NPR voice. You do have so. an NPR voice, and so you saying some of these titles, it's so cute. I know, I know. Yeah. No, because it reminds me of that um, lady on TikTok who does the NPR. That was Back That Thing Up. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I do, too. It. I know. That's a good TikTok. Anyway. So, yes. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can here. Yes. However, in June 2000, okay, so get it on the floor. After his release, its release, he informed the public that he was going to retire and that he intended for Grand Champ to be his final album. In 2004, he was arrested at JFK Airport on charges of coke possession, criminal impersonation, criminal possession of a weapon, criminal mischief, menacing, Driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol while claiming to be a federal agent and attempting <laughs> oh, to a vehicle. We're back to carjacking. Stop it with the carjacking, dude. No one likes that. It's not a good look. Seriously. He was given a conditional discharge on December 8th of 2004, but pleaded guilty that October 2005 to violating parole. Uh, November of 2005, he was sentenced to 70 days in jail at Rikers Island, which I would not want to do. No, I was going to say, no, keep me out of Rikers, please. I'd rather not. Um, the latest charge added a 10-day extension to the original 60-day sentence. He was released early for good behavior uh, on December 30th, 2005. So after some conflicts with Jeff, with Def Jam... And in exchange for signing Nas to the record label in a trade, DMX signed to Columbia Records, which was his former company, in January 2006. He recorded his sixth album, Year of the Dog, again, while switching between the two labels, which caused numerous delays. It was finally released on August 1st, 2006, and debuted at number two 
on the Billboard 200. In 2008, Def Jam released his Greatest Hits album. Um, and then in May 9th of that same year, he was he was arrested <laughs> on no. drug on drug and animal cruelty charges after attempting to barricade himself inside his home in Cave Creek, Arizona. He pleaded guilty to charges of drug possession, theft, and animal cruelty stemming from an August 2007 drug raid, as well as the May 2008 arrest, and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. In May of 2009, he entered a plea agreement to attempted aggravated assault in jail. And then, because it always comes to this, he claimed he was going to pursue preaching in Jersey City, New Jersey. He completed a gospel album prior to his incarceration that time. According to MTV, he had semi-retired to study the Bible in an effort to give messages behind the pulpit. We'll see how well that worked. I, I would love to hear DMX preach. Can I, I just mean, say that? Yes. I would adore it. Yeah. After serving four out of six months for violating probation, he was released from jail on July 6, 2010. That day, a television pilot was filmed to portray his road to recovery. However, he was arrested three weeks later, and the pilot did not evolve into a series. Oh, jeez. Uh... On July 27th, 2010, he turned himself into the Los Angeles Metropolitan Court for a reckless driving charge and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. That November, he was arrested in Maricopa County, Arizona, the last place I would ever want to be arrested, on charges <laughs> of violating probation for an aggravated assault on a corrections officer. December 20th, so not even okay, a little more than a month. I'm going to give him that one day of credit. He was <laughs> moved to the mental health unit of the Arizona Alhambra State Prison, and then he was later released in July of 2011. Not a month later, he was arrested for the 10th time in Maricopa County, this time for speeding, recorded at 102 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone. Sir, reckless... <laughs> <laughs> sir, reckless driving and driving with a suspended license. He admitted to speeding, but claimed he was only going eighty-five. Yeah, only eighty-five. Not, this is not like Jay Z says doing fifty-four and a fifty-five. This right. that, that's a little much. <laughs> like. Even yeah. 85 and a 65 is reckless driving. Okay, sweet. I know. Like, yeah. Sir. On Blow October down, please. 11th of 2011, he performed at the BET Hip Hop Awards. He stated that he has been working nonstop every day on his seventh album, which was titled Undisputed. A video for a new track titled Last Hope was released via the internet. Uh, in September of 2011, and later landed on the Way In EP that was digitally released. Um, in late February of 2012, Seven Arts Pictures acquired the catalog of his music and signed him to a two-album deal. During a performance at New York's Santos Party House on Christmas Day 2011, DMX stated that the new album would be titled Undisputed and would be released on March 26th of coming year. After numerous delays, it was released in September 2012. In 2013, DMX announced he began working on his eighth studio album, 
After he regained his passport, he embarked on a world tour with performances in Bulgaria and Kosovo. Okay. Big DMX fans in Kosovo. However, in February of 2013, wait for it, he was arrested in Spartanburg, Cal- uh, South Carolina. We what are the about fuck to was get... he doing in Spartanburg? God, I don't know. Look, I don't... <laughs> so we're about to get into his adventures with the criminal justice system in South Carolina. And I am not a fan of the Carolinas. So I don't know if this was like, it's a prominent black man with a history of getting in trouble. So they just kind of stayed on his ass. Or if he was just out being flagrant. I don't know, but... Him and the uh, South Carolina justice system got very acquainted during this time. Would you like to guess what he was arrested for? Speeding. Driving without a driver's license. (laughs) Good, sir. Good, sir. You have millions of dollars. Get You you, you got people. Go have them get your license. Yes. So that was in February. July, he was arrested again, this time in Greenville. And charged with driving under the influence of alcohol, as well as he still had not gotten his driver's license. Sir. (laughs) Like, so talented and so impressive, and he just, these little things keep getting him. He's too busy writing amazing raps to to do the basic human things. (laughs) Look, I still have to get my license done. I get it. It's a pain in the ass. But honey. Yes, it is. You just do it. Yeah, it'll solve a lot of problems. So that was July. Now we're to August. He was arrested again. This time, I'm not going to put this entirely on him. Uh, During a traffic stop, he was a passenger in a car that made an illegal U-turn. Again, I think at this point that might just be fucking with him. Yep. He was arrested due to an outstanding warrant for driving under suspension. They found some marijuana in the car. I think at that point they're just kind of fucking on him. Yeah, and um, I'm I hate all these. Oh, they had a little weed on. Uh, okay, I know. Who cares? Whatever. November 2013, he gave himself a little bit of a break. I do appreciate that. He was again, <laughs> ar- this time was arrested at the Spartanburg International Airport. Uh, after police who were familiar with his prior arrests, again, I kind of think maybe they were on his ass a little bit. Yeah. Noticed that he was behind the wheel of a vehicle at the terminal. He was booked on charges of driving with a suspended license, having an uninsured vehicle, driving an unlicensed vehicle, and was released after spending three hours in jail. Again, I'm like, I'm, I'm not giving South Carolina any leeway yeah. here. It was like a fairly prominent troubled black man, and they just were on his dick. Yep. January 7th, 2015, Seven Arts Music announced that DMX would be releasing Redemption of the Beast the following week. However, close personal friend and collaborator Swizz Beats, who I believe is Alicia Keys' husband? Yes, Yes. I think so. And DMX's management confirmed that this was indeed false. On January 13th, Seven Arts Music released the album without a legal artist contract. Uh Uh-oh. That's Uh, not good. So... Legal action was taken for the unauthorized release. However, on April 5th, 2015, a man accused DMX of robbing him. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Why would DMX need to rob somebody? 
I don't know. That I just wish. Blech. Then yeah. on June 26th of that year, he was arrested in New York, charged with robbery in Newark, and failure to pay child support. Oh, we're going to talk about this child support. So on July 14th, he was sentenced in six months in jail for failure to pay $400,000 in child support. God. Sir, you have to. You have you, 17 you, kids. You, you, you bore those children. You have to pay it, my dude. <sighs> and yet again, in December, an arrest warrant was issued after he missed a court hearing to address child support issues with his ex-wife, Tashara Simmons, and their four children. His 2003 song, X Gotta Give It To You, was, however, featured in the 2016 film Deadpool and its trailers. Um, mm-hmm. Which I do love when movies properly use DMX's music. Um, the first place I heard it was, um, oh, the Nicolas Cage, Angelina, got in 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> during a really good scene of that, they used Party Up, and it was fantastic. So his music is great. You have to use it properly. On February 10th, 2016, he was found unresponsive in a parking lot of a Ramada Inn in Yonkers. Oh, a Ramada. Not a good look. <laughs> oh. Not a good look. Oh, honey. No, no, no. He was resuscitated by first responders and given Narcan. A witness suggested he un- ingested a powdered substance before collapsing, but police found no illegal substances, which means somebody and his crew grabbed his shit before leaving. He said it was from an asthma attack. Narcan will not help you in an asthma attack, good sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But okay. And his woes continued in July of 2017. He was charged with 14 counts of tax fraud. Oh, honey. No. Sorry. I, I don't like that this is the world we live in, but you have to pay those too. Yeah. Again, <sighs> it's it's the little like admin parts of life that just keep fucking him up and i'm like i get yeah. it baby i get it but hire you a secretary or something yep federal prosecutors charged him with failing to file income tax returns from 2010 to 2015 a period where he earned at least 2.3 million um <laughs> i'm guessing it's because he owed several hundred thousand dollars of child support and they were going to take all of his taxes yep he pleaded guilty to a single count of tax fraud in November of that year. He was originally free pending sentencing, but was remanded to jail in January after leaving a drug treatment program ordered by the court and relapsing with Coke and Oxy. Oh, no. In March of 2018, (laughs) he was sentenced to a year in prison, followed by three years of supervised release. He was also ordered to pay $2.29 million in restitution. He was released from prison on January 25th, 2019. September of that year, he signed a new record deal with Def Jam, reuniting with the label for the first time since 2003. However, two years later, on April 2nd, 2021, at approximately 11 p.m., he was rushed to White Plains Hospital, where he was reported to be in critical condition following a heart attack at his home resulting from a drug overdose the next day his attorney murray richmond which murray why weren't you filing this man's taxes you're <laughs> making man's- sure it was getting done Shit. your oh, name Jesus. is murray when your right. name is murray you do things like taxes right i was like <laughs> i mean i'm sorry that is a him. 
when when mama names you Murray, she's setting you up for a life of you taxes. Are, you are the tax and making sure his auto is licensed, man. Where were yeah, you, go, Murray? Yeah, go get that man's license, jeez. Right. The next day, Murray confirmed Simmons was on life support. That same night, he suffered uh, cerebral hypoxia as he was attempted to be resuscitated for 30 minutes. Mm. Um, his former manager, Nakia Walker, said he was in a vegetative state with lung and brain failure and no current brain activity. His manager, Steve Rifkind, stated Williams was, or that DMX was comatose and that he was set to undergo tests to determine his brain's functionality and his family would, quote, determine what's best from there. A week later, on the morning of April 9th, April 9th, 2021, he lost functionality in multiple essential organs and was pronounced dead shortly after at the age of 50. It was revealed on July 8th by the Westchester County Medical Examiner's Office that his official cause of death was cocaine-induced heart attack. His eighth and posthumous studio album, Exodus, was released through Def Jam on May 28th of 2021. The magazine Ringer wrote upon his death, throughout his nearly three-decade career, DMX came to embody passion, rawness, and pure emotional honesty like few hip-hop artists ever have, barking his way through hits like Rough Riders Anthem and Get Me a Dog One Minute, and repenting and philosophizing on tracks like Slippin' the next. He was deci- he ha- His was a decidedly anti-commercial approach, but it worked, and it made him the genre's first new superstar in the wake of the killings of Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G., to this day, few have been able to reach the heights he did. He's the only rapper to have his first five studio albums debut at number one. He was the first living hip-hop artist to have two projects go platinum in the same year. A celebration of life took place on August 24, or April 24th, 2021. The memorial took place at Barclays Center in Brooklyn with a limited capacity of 1900. It was live-streamed on DMX's YouTube and Instagram accounts. On the way to Barclays, DMX's casket was carried by a black monster truck with long live DMX paint on the side. I remember it was that was rad, incredibly impressed and being like, if this is not how I am transported to the crematory, I don't want it. (laughs) A procession of hundreds of motorcyclists in homage to the hip top collective Rough Riders rode from DMX's birthplace of Yonkers to the Barclays Center in between performances. Speeches from Eve, Nas, Swiss Beats, and um, the Rough Rider founders were included. DMX's funeral, also known as a homegoing celebration, took place in Brooklyn at the Christian Cultural Center the next day. It was live streamed on the BET network and its YouTube channel. It lasted around five hours. Black funerals take the better part of a day. Mm-hmm. Um to a limited capacity of 2,000 people. His casket was red and featured the word faith in large letters across it. Again, I expected no less. Um, his former wife, Tashara Simmons, gave a speech, um, as well as the founders of Rough Riders. There's also controversial testimonies, like former Def Tan chief Lear Conan, Cohen, who was one of the ones who kind of gave him his first shot at Def Jam, um, when his video featured an overhead view of a beach and explained how Earl Simmons was a mon- wonderful man while DMX was a gremlin. Wow. As a gremlin, as a gremlin I can relate. And also, I think that is, like, his persona was this gruff street guy. Mm-hmm. And 
perhaps his private life he was a good soul so either way i thought it was interesting additionally jeff def jam co-founder russell simmons who we all know compared his own issues with drug abuse to dmx via video again this was 2021 so we're talking covid a palooza so things had to be done yeah you know his homegoing ended with his obituary being read on stage and a virtual performance from Faith Evans, who I adore. And Tupac didn't have to do her like that in that song. Um, at the funeral, New York City community leader and peacemaker Erica Ford presented DMX's family with several citations of proclamations from governors and Senate offices, including a proclamation from the New York State Senate declaring December 18th DMX's birthday to Earl DMX Simmons Day. Additional citations from Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Mike Spano of Yonkers, the hometown, his hometown. Cuomo had the flag flying over the state capitol on the day of his death presented to his family, which I think was very sweet. Mm-hmm. On July t- on June 28th, 2021, his music was represented by Jeff Jam label mate Method Man, close friend Swizz Beats, Busta Rhymes, and actor Michael K. Williams, who would pass away from drug intoxication five months later. That mm-hmm. broke my heart. Yeah. Um, at the BET Awards uh, in 2021. He is interred at the Oakland Cemetery in Yonkers, New York. His stone is inscribed with a portrait of him and the following. The legend. No weapons formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Oh, wow. Ah! So, yes, it was long because DMX is fucking interesting and amazing. And even my translucent ass appreciates all of his amazingness. Well, you know, and he it, did it have just... a pretty extensive um, acting career that I really didn't go into because it's a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, he was just an entertainer. He was. And. You know, it's like we've said before, no one's perfect. And no, absolutely. Everyone is complicated. Everyone well, is problematic. And right. but that doesn't mean you can't highlight the good stuff they did. And like I said to me, when I hear about people on drugs, my first thought or any addiction is not, oh God, what a terrible person, but what a human. Like addiction right. is so human. And especially when, like I said, that crap is getting introduced to black communities through the government. Right. Um, you know, it it's it, born to a single teen mother. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, and you know and it's um it's really hard to live this life without some kind of vice, honestly. I'm not saying go out and do drugs. I'm saying right. find a safer vice than drugs, please. But right. but yeah, I I I don't I'm not ever gonna be someone who condemns um uh uh someone for their drug use because I just feel like that's a very human thing that happens to a right. lot of us. And I think too of like growing up and the streets of the 80s, which we cannot even fathom, like, how violent the 80s were, especially in New York and the surrounding areas. Having grown up in that, I mean, and then, you know, later as he's moving on in life and becoming financially stable and all these mm-hmm. other things, that trauma and that that build of your brain to constantly be in that trauma mode and to constantly use the law of the streets, basically. Yeah. The law of being incarcerated. 
which is a whole different world from polite society. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I could see not being able to break out of that and not be able to function like a normal adult, like a normal, you know, having $2.3 million in income and not having your fucking car licensed. Like, I I get it, (laughs) you know, because that's those are those little parts of life that when you're living criminal having your fucking license suspended is the least of what you're doing oh yeah you know? and it's yeah and that's what it is those little administrative things that seem to fuck him up and it's like was was he served and was society served by keep throwing him in jail for dumb i know shit, like not having his driver's license or not or having a tiny bit of weed or something yeah exactly and so it's like yes at a certain point you have to be a grown man and you have to do your you know you have to yeah none of us likes to do it but we've got to do it but at another point it's like he came from such a traumatic background that it's like could he actually do that you know yeah was was that level of functioning possible for him yeah, and, you know, was he being served by continuously? I'm not saying don't have rules for people who've grown up with that. Right. But I'm saying maybe extend a little bit of, you know, this isn't good for him. This isn't benefiting society in any way. I know. What yeah. was the point? A little grace to- and mercy goes a long way. Exactly, and that's like with the shit that happened in South Carolina, where it was all admin stuff and the drug shit here and there. I was just like, y'all were just being dicks. Like, yeah. Yeah. Y'all were just being assholes. So, DMX, love it. Um, in his honor, go play. Uh, X gonna give it to you. Um, one of my party tricks is I can totally do the entirety of that song, edited of course for language because I don't say certain words. Um, I was about to be like, "What don't you say?" And then it hit me. <laughs> yeah. I may well, be yes. guilty, but I am not a bigot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I just I just leave a little gap when I rap exactly. my favorite rap songs. Absolutely. But yeah. Um I so think you that's guys a good like cool historical figures. I'm like, DMX. I love it. I love it. And I love how this time I was thinking about it last night. I'm like, none of us have checked with each other. Like, I think we're yeah, all like pretty sure I'm not going to cover. <laughs> I mean, I, I kept going back and forth because I had several people I wanted to cover. And of course, I always like giving Memphis a shout out and covering Memphis oh, people. Absolutely. But I'm like, this lady has been on my mind. I I heard about her for the first time last year when I was in Savannah and um Enica who gives great ghost tours there was telling me oh they're gonna rename this square and I was like what I didn't know anything about it and I was like this is rad and she's just been on my mind since then as someone cool so I was like okay yeah but then yeah should have known Lori had a cowboy should have known <laughs> Hannah yeah anyone had a, cover a rapper it's going to be, gonna be you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that we have covered him. But yeah. And for no um, other reason other than to get me to say rap lyrics in my NPR voice. <laughs> yes, exactly. I saw something the other day. What was it? Something about customer service voices is like ASMR for boomers or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was something really funny. And I was like, yes. Anyway. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, go celebrate Black History Month. Please learn all you can about Black history because it Absolutely. is our history and it is incredibly important to understanding the world we currently live in. Um, so, yeah. Um, Luhu, if people wanted to find us online and send us a nice message, 
Where we can are we on do that? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. Woohoo! <laughs> that will always be my favorite thing ever. Um, <laughs> please. And send us messages. Um, we love it. I yes. know. I know. Gee whiz. And um, also leave us reviews. Um, subscribe tell please your tell friends. your friends <laughs> we are still in in baby mode of being a podcast in terms of listeners we'd like more listeners because we we're having fun doing this but Absolutely. you know what if you don't think we're awesome then fine go on anyway um but yeah leave us a nice review and tell your friends i think we're gonna do a grab bag next week unless we decide to change yeah. our minds yeah um, we'll figure it I- out I think I'm gonna try to find a, a criminal or some some crime oh, to yeah. talk about. I'm in a yeah. I'm in a crime mood. I don't know. We'll see. Um. Anyway, thanks awesome. for tuning awesome. in. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.